You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner. Ten lectures uh, entitled Christ and the Human Soul, uh, translated by Agnes Schneeburg de Stur, and this is Lecture 5, given in Neuköping on May 30, 1912. From what was presented in yesterday's lecture, it became clear that moral impulses are inherent to human nature. Based on the facts presented earlier, we tried to demonstrate that the foundation of morality, the foundation of goodness, lies at the base of the human soul, and that it was only in the course of evolution, in the passage from incarnation to incarnation, that human beings have strayed from their original, almost instinctive predisposition toward the good, and thereby made it possible for evil, error, and immorality to enter into humanity. If this is true, however, we should be all the more astonished that evil can exist at all, that it can come into existence, and should feel impelled to ask, how then has evil become possible in the course of evolution? A comprehensive answer to this question can be obtained only by exploring the elementary moral teachings that were given to people already in ancient times. The pupils of the mysteries, whose highest ideal was to gradually penetrate to complete spiritual knowledge and truth, were always obliged to work from a moral foundation, wherever work was done in the true spirit of the mysteries. The specific character of the moral nature of the human being was illustrated for the pupils in a very special manner. If we are to describe briefly how this took place, we may say, the pupils of the mysteries were shown that human nature can bring about destruction and harm in two directions, and that human beings are in a position to develop free will only because of this possibility of causing harm, of erring in two directions. They were then shown that life can take a favorable course only when these two ways of deviation are regarded as two sides of a balance where at any moment either the one side or the other side can go up or down, and true balance is achieved only when the cross-beam is in the horizontal position. In this way the pupils were shown that the right conduct of a human being cannot at all be described by saying that one thing is correct and the other incorrect, that right conduct is achieved only through the fact that human beings, at every moment in their lives, are placed in the position of being pulled either to the one side or to the other, and that they themselves must establish the balance between the two. Consider the virtue of fortitude or courage described earlier. With respect to it, human nature may swing to the one side, toward recklessness, that is, toward unrestrained activity in the world with full application of all of a person's available forces. That is the one side, the side of recklessness. The other side, the 
Other side of the scale is cowardice. The human being can veer to either side, as it were, and the pupils in the mystery centers were shown that if we veer toward recklessness, then we lose ourselves, we lay aside ourself, and become crushed by the wheels of life. Life tears us apart if we err in this direction. If, on the other hand, we err toward the side of cowardice, then we become hardened in ourselves and torn away from other things and beings. Then we become self-enclosed beings who fall away from our connection with the world because our actions cannot be brought into harmony with the whole. This was shown to the mystery pupils with regard to all human actions. Either we regress because we become crushed and torn apart by the objective world and thus lose ourself, or we regress because we have gone in the other direction, not just with regard to fortitude, but with any action, in such a way that we become hardened within ourselves. Accordingly, right at the top of the moral code in any of the mystery centers stood the important ground rule. You must find the mean, so that through your deeds you do not lose yourself to the world, and the world does not lose you. These are the two possible directions human beings can be drawn into. Either we become lost to the world and are gripped and worn down by the world, as is the case with recklessness, or the world is lost for us because we harden ourselves in our egoism, as is the case with cowardice. Accordingly, the pupils in the mystery centers were told that there is no such thing as a conclusive, fixed goodness for which one can strive. That goodness, rather, arises solely because the human being, like a pendulum, can continually swing to one side or to the other and must, through personal inner force, find the possibility of balance, the central mean between the two. You can see that with this you have everything that makes it possible for you to understand the freedom of will and the significance of reason and wisdom in human conduct. If it were appropriate for human beings to abide by eternal moral principles, then we would only need to adopt these principles and we could then march through life in a straight line. But life is never like that. Instead, freedom in life consists in always having the opportunity of erring in the one direction or in the other. And because of this, the possibility of immorality of evil also arises. For what is evil? Evil is what develops when we either lose ourselves to the world or the world loses us. What we call the good consists in avoiding both of these. Evil has become possible in the course of evolution because in passing from incarnation to incarnation human beings have erred either in the one direction or in the other and because they did not always find the balance were required to create karmic compensation at a future time. What cannot be achieved in one lifetime in terms of finding the mean is achieved in the course of evolution and through several lifetimes, inasmuch as a person who has erred to the one side is then obliged, perhaps in the next life, to swing to the other side and thus create compensation. 
What I have just told you was a golden rule in the ancient mysteries. As is so often the case, we can again find an echo of this mystery principle among the early philosophers. We find that where Aristotle speaks of virtue, he gives a characterization that can be understood only if we know that what has just been referred to here was indeed an ancient mystery principle, a principle which Aristotle received through tradition and then incorporated into his philosophy. That is why Aristotle gives this remarkable definition of virtue. Virtue is a human ability guided by rational insights which, in relation to the human being, holds the mean between the too much and the too little. And with this Aristotle has indeed given a definition of virtue such as has not been achieved by any subsequent philosophy. Because Aristotle had the tradition from the mysteries, he could arrive at the precise truth. This, then, is the famous mean, which must be maintained if the human being is to be virtuous, if moral power is to pulsate through the world. We can now also answer the question of why morality must exist at all. For what happens when morality is absent? when the too much or the too little governs, when either the human being is lost to the world by being crushed or the world is lost for the human being. In each case, something is always destroyed. Everything evil, everything immoral, is a process of destruction. And the moment we recognize that when we do evil, we are actually destroying and eliminating something from the world, in that moment, an impulse of goodness overwhelmingly takes effect in us. And it is especially the task of the anthroposophical movement, which is now only beginning to enter the world, to show how all evil brings about a destructive process and how it eliminates something that is urgently needed in the world. If we now, in the sense of our anthroposophical world conception, adhere to the principle that has just been brought forward, then what we know about the nature of the human being leads us to a particular understanding of good and evil. We know that the sentient soul was specifically developed in the ancient Chaldean cultural epoch during the third post-Atlantean epoch. People today have little notion what this epoch of evolution was really like, for external history does not reach back much beyond Egyptian times. We know that the intellectual or mind soul developed during the fourth epoch, the Greco-Latin cultural epoch, and that now, in our epoch, we are developing the consciousness soul. The spirit self will only come into full effect in the sixth cultural epoch. Let us now ask, in what way can the sentient soul stray from the good? either to the one side or to the other. The sentient soul is what enables the human being to experience the world of objects, to perceive this world, to take part in it. And rather than to remain ignorant about the things encountered in this world, to come into a relationship with them. All this is brought about through the sentient soul we will be able to find the one direction in which a human being can stray 
with respect to the sentient soul, when we ask ourselves, what is it, in fact, that enables us to have a relationship with our surroundings? It is what we may call our interest in things. This word, interest, in quotes, expresses something which, in a moral sense, is extremely significant. It is much more important to consider the moral significance of interest than to devote oneself to thousands upon thousands of moral axioms, which, although beautiful, may well be petty and hypocritical. Our moral impulses are, in fact, never guided better than when we take proper interest in objects or beings. Please think about this. Because of the way I spoke in yesterday's lecture about the deeper meaning of love as an impulse, I trust that I will not now be misunderstood when I say that even the usual oft-repeated saying of, quote, love, love, and love again, close quote, cannot replace the moral impulse that is contained in what is indicated in the word, in quotes, interest. Suppose we have a child before us. What is the prerequisite for our devoting ourselves to this child? What is the precondition for our being able to guide this child in its development? The precondition is that we take an interest in it. The soul contains an unhealthy element if a human being pulls away from something in which he or she should take an interest. The more we get beyond the mere preaching of morals and advance to the real foundations of morality, the more we will recognize that in a moral sense the impulse of interest is an especially golden impulse. When we extend our interests, when we find opportunity to meet the objects and beings of the world with understanding, forces are called forth within us, also in encountering human beings. Even our compassion is awakened in the right manner if we take an interest in another being. If, as anthroposophists, we set ourselves the task of increasingly extending our interests, of increasingly widening our horizons, then this will also enhance the universal fellowship of humanity. It is not through the mere preaching of universal love that progress is made, but rather by extending our interests further and further so that we increasingly come to be interested in and develop an understanding of people with the most diverse temperaments and personalities, with the most diverse racial and national characteristics, with the most diverse religious and philosophical views. Right understanding, right interest elicits from the soul the right moral conduct. Here, too, we must hold the mean between two extremes. One extreme is apathy, indifference to things, which is the cause of immense moral catastrophes in the world. Apathy makes us indifferent to the world, causes us to live only in ourselves and to stubbornly insist on our own viewpoint. In a moral sense, this insistence on a viewpoint is never a good thing. What is essential is that we be open to all that is around us, Apathy pulls us away from the world, whereas interest places us within it. Through our apathy the world loses us and we become immoral. Thus we see that apathy and lack of interest in the world are morally bad 
to the highest degree. Anthroposophy, however, is something that makes the mind ever more active, helps us to better think the spiritual, and to take it into ourselves. Just as it is true that warmth arises when we light a fire in a stove, so it is true that interest in everything human and in all beings arises when we take in anthroposophical truths. Wisdom is the fuel for interest. And we can say, even if this may perhaps not be immediately obvious, that anthroposophy causes this interest to be reignited in us when we study those more remote subjects, such as the teachings about Saturn, Sun and Moon, or about karma, and so on. It is absolutely the case that what arises as the transformed product of anthroposophical knowledge is interest. Whereas materialistic knowledge gives rise to what is unfortunately so very prevalent today, and what in a radical sense must be designated as apathy, which, if it alone were to prevail, would have to cause tremendous harm. Just notice the way in which many people move through the world, how they may meet this or that person, but do not really get to know this other human being because they are quite shut up in themselves. How often do we find that two people have been friends for a long time and then suddenly experience a rift in their friendship? This happens because the impetus of their friendship had a materialistic foundation, and it became apparent only after a longer time that they had not, until then, noticed their mutually unsympathetic character traits. Very few people today have an open eye, E-Y-E, a clear sense for what speaks from one human being to another human being. But this is just what spiritual science should bring about. It should bring an expansion of our perceptions so that we acquire a clear sense and an open soul for all human aspects around us, so that we do not pass through the world apathetically, but rather with true interest. And we avoid the other extreme here as well, inasmuch as we distinguish between genuine proper interest and false interest, and thereby keep to the mean. Throwing ourselves forthwith into the arms of everybody and everything we meet is ardent loss of self, not genuine interest. If we do this, we lose ourselves to the world. Through apathy, the world loses us. Through meaningless passion, through woozy abandon, we lose ourselves to the world. Through healthy interest, we keep firmly and morally to the middle, to the state of balance. In the third post-Atlantean cultural epoch, the Egyptian Chaldean epoch, a certain force still existed in the majority of the earth's population. One can call it the impulse to hold the balance between apathy and passionate, intoxicating surrender to the world. This is what in ancient times, and even still with Plato and Aristotle, was called wisdom. The people regarded this, however, as the gift of superhuman beings, for in those times the ancient impulses of wisdom were still active. Therefore, from this point of view, that is to say with respect to moral impulses, the third post-Atlantean epoch may be called the epoch of instinctive wisdom. 
Hence, in looking back at this particular time period, we may then also experience the truth of what was said last year, albeit with different intent, in my Copenhagen lectures, which are now available in the booklet titled The Spiritual Guidance of the Individual and of Humanity. The truth of what we expressed by saying that people at that time still were closer to the divine spiritual powers. And what made it possible for human beings to be nearer the divine spiritual powers in this third post-Atlantean epoch was the instinctive wisdom. Thus in that time it was a divine endowment that made it possible for people to find in a manner proportionate to that time the right mean between apathy and passionate surrender. This mean, this balance, was still maintained through external traditions and customs. The complete intermingling of peoples which came to pass through the great migrations in the fourth epoch of the post-Atlantean civilization had not yet begun. Humanity was still divided into ethnic groups and tribes, and there the interests were regulated through wisdom and in consonance with nature. These interests were active to the extent that on the one hand the right moral impulses could penetrate, while on the other hand the blood relationships existing within the tribes provided an obstruction to mindless passions. Even in observing our lives today, one cannot fail to acknowledge that interest develops most easily where blood relationship or common ancestry is involved, and also that what is called mindless passion is not present in such settings either. And as people lived in relatively small territories during the Egyptian Chaldean epoch, the wisdom-filled mean was easily maintained. But the real meaning of the advancing evolution of humanity is that what was originally instinctive, what was spiritual and divine, shall gradually disappear, and that human beings shall become independent of the divine spiritual powers. Hence we see that already in the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch, the Greco-Latin era, the philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, but also Greek public opinion, regarded wisdom as something to be acquired, as something that was no longer a divine endowment, but as something to be striven for. The first virtue for Plato is wisdom, and according to him, anyone who does not strive for wisdom is immoral. We are now in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. We are still far from the time when the wisdom instinctively implanted in humanity as a divine impulse will become fully conscious in human beings. Accordingly, in our time, people are especially susceptible to the possibility of straying in both the directions we have indicated. This is why it is especially necessary that the great dangers associated with this possibility be counteracted by a spiritual, by an anthroposophical worldview, so that what humanity once had as instinctive wisdom can now become conscious wisdom. The very essence of the anthroposophical movement is that we must now attain as conscious wisdom what people once had as instinctive wisdom, 
This essence can also be expressed thus. The gods once gave wisdom as something instinctive to the unconscious human soul, whereas now we must first take in the truths about the cosmos and about human evolution and make them fully our own. The customs and mores in ancient times also conformed to the thoughts of the gods. And we understand anthroposophy rightly if we regard it as the study of those divine thoughts. In the past they flowed instinctively into human beings. Today we have to study them and make this knowledge our own. In this sense we must regard anthroposophy as something coming from the gods. We must be able to create a mood of reverence when we consider that the thoughts conveyed to us through anthroposophy are really something divine, something we are privileged to think. That we are able to rethink the thoughts that were once the divine thoughts according to which the world has been structured. When we relate to anthroposophy in this manner, we have the kind of approach that allows us to recognize that this knowledge has been given to us so that we can carry out our tasks. Tremendous truths are disclosed to us when we study what has been imparted concerning the Earth's evolution through the stages of Saturn, Sun and Moon, concerning the development of the various races, concerning reincarnation, and so on. But we only approach this in the right way if we realize the thoughts we are exploring are the thoughts according to which the gods have guided evolution. We think the evolution of the gods. If we truly comprehend this, then something arises in us that is deeply moral. This cannot fail to appear. We then say to ourselves, quote, In ancient times people had instinctive wisdom from the gods. The gods gave them the wisdom, according to which they had fashioned the world. This enabled human beings to act morally. But now we acquire this wisdom consciously through anthroposophy. Therefore, we can also be confident that this wisdom shall be transformed in us into moral impulses, so that what we take into ourselves are not just anthroposophical wisdom truths, but moral impulses as well. Now, into what kind of moral impulses? Will our spiritual scientific striving be transformed, especially with respect to wisdom? We touch here on a point whose further development may well be foreseen by those striving for spiritual science, a point whose profound moral weight and significance indeed must be foreseen. It is a point of development which is far removed from what is prevalent today, namely that which Plato still called the ideal of wisdom. Since he used a word that was commonplace when wisdom still lived instinctively within people, it would be good to replace it with a different word. It would be good to replace it with the word truthfulness, because we have become more individualized, because we have distanced ourselves from the divine and must therefore find our way back to it. We must learn to feel the full weight and significance of the word truthfulness, and with respect to morality, this will be an outcome of the anthroposophical worldview and disposition. People will learn to perceive and experience truthfulness through anthroposophy. Those striving for spiritual science today 
will understand how necessary it is to develop a comprehensive feeling for the moral dimension of truthfulness in an age when materialism has advanced to the point where people may indeed still speak of truth, but where life in general is far removed from sensing, from experiencing it in the right way. Today this cannot be otherwise. Truth is something that, to a large extent, must be lacking in contemporary culture, because of the fact that a specific trait has taken root in contemporary society. I ask you, do people still feel anything today when they read something in a newspaper or another publication, and then learn later that what they had read simply wasn't true? I would ask you to ponder this seriously. It cannot be said that it happens at every turn, but it must be said that it really happens at every quarter turn. Wherever modern life extends, untruthfulness has become a trait of our present cultural epoch, and it is simply not possible to claim that truthfulness is a characteristic of our epoch. For instance, take a person whom you know has written or said something untrue, and then place the facts before him or her. You will find, as a rule, today that this person has no feeling at all for the wrongness of this. The immediate response will be, quote, Well, I said it in good faith. Close quote. Anthroposophists should not regard it as moral when someone says that an incorrect statement ought to be excused because it was said in good faith. People will increasingly learn to understand that they must first ascertain whether what they articulate has actually happened. In other words, people should only say or report something after they have felt and acted in accordance with the obligation to test with all the means at their disposal whether it is actually so. It is only when a person accepts this obligation that truthfulness can be experienced as moral impulse. Then people will no longer say, after having placed an incorrect statement into the world, quote, this is how I thought it was, I said it in good faith, close quote. They will then learn that one is obliged not merely to say what one believes to be correct, but to say only what is true and correct. There is no other way. In this respect, a radical change must gradually come about in the life of our culture. The rapid pace of life, people's craving for sensations, everything that happens as a consequence of a materialistic age, all these are opponents of truthfulness. In the realm of morality, anthroposophy will be an educator of humanity in the obligation toward truthfulness. It is not my task today to discuss to what degree truthfulness has already been realized within the anthroposophical society, but rather to point out that what has been said today must, in principle, be a high anthroposophical ideal. The moral development within the anthroposophical movement will have enough of a task if the moral ideal of truthfulness is felt, perceived, and thought through in all its aspects. This moral ideal of truthfulness will be what produces virtue in the sentient soul of human beings in the right manner. The second member of the soul that we have to distinguish in anthroposophy is what we usually call the intellectual or mind-soul, in German Verstandes oder Gemutsseele. 
you know that this part of the soul came into its own, particularly during the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch, the Greco-Latin epoch. We have already described the virtue that is particularly fundamental for this part of the soul, namely courage, fortitude, bravery. In its extreme forms, this becomes recklessness or cowardice. Bravery, courage, fortitude form the mean between recklessness and cowardice. The German word gemüt expresses, even in its sound, that there is a connection. The word indicates this middle part of the human soul, the part that is full of courage, mutvoll, strength and force. This was also the middle virtue for Plato and Aristotle. It is the virtue which, in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, was still present in human beings as a divine legacy, whereas wisdom was still present only as something instinctive during the third post-Atlantean epoch. Instinctive fortitude and courage, you will have gathered this from the earlier lectures, existed as a gift of the gods among the people who met the northward expansion of Christianity during the fourth cultural epoch. They showed that bravery still was present among them as a divine legacy, whereas wisdom and a wisdom-filled understanding of the secrets of the starry worlds were present among the Chaldeans, as a divine endowment, as something inspired, so were fortitude and courage present among the people of the fourth post-Atlantean age, particularly the Greeks and Romans, and also among the peoples who later took on the task of spreading Christianity. This courage was lost later than this wisdom. If now in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch we look around us, then we must say that in regard to fortitude and courage, we are in a similar position compared to the Greeks, as the Greeks were in regard to wisdom compared to the Chaldeans and Egyptians. We look back at what was a divine endowment in the epoch immediately preceding ours, and which in a certain way we are able to strive for again. But the two previous lectures have shown us that in connection with this striving a certain transformation must take place. We saw how a divine endowment, which had a more external character as fortitude and courage, became transformed in Francis of Assisi. We saw that this transformation came about as the result of an inner moral force, which we were able to identify in yesterday's lecture as the force of the Christ impulse. The transformation of courage and fortitude then brings about pure love. This pure love, however, must be guided by the other virtue, by genuine interest in the being toward whom we direct our love. In his title Timon of Athens, Shakespeare shows how even love and kind-heartedness can cause harm if manifested too passionately, if they appear merely as an attribute of human nature without being guided by wisdom and truthfulness. In this play we find a personality depicted who squanders his possessions in all directions. Generosity is a virtue, but Shakespeare also shows us that what is squandered produces nothing but parasites. Therefore we have to say that just as the ancient fortitude and courage were guided from the mystery centers by the European Brahmins, the wise leaders who kept themselves hidden in the background, 
so too in human nature, must virtue be guided by and be in harmony with interest. Our interest that brings us into relation with the outer world in the right way must lead and guide us when we turn to the outer world with our love. Essentially, this is also what can be seen in the characteristic, albeit radical, example of Francis of Assisi. The compassion and pity that Francis of Assisi had for human beings was not of the type that easily becomes obtrusive or offensive. For those who want to smother others with their compassion are not always motivated by the best moral impulses, and there are in fact many people who will not accept anything given out of pity. Approaching someone with understanding, however, is not offensive. Under certain circumstances, pity is something that must be rejected, but being approached with understanding is something that no healthy person can reject. This is why another person's actions cannot be faulted either, as long as these actions are in accord with this understanding, with this principle. It is this understanding that can guide us with respect to the second virtue, love. This is the quality which, through the Christ impulse, has become the special virtue of the intellectual or mind-soul. It is the virtue that can be characterized as human love accompanied by human understanding. Compassion, empathy, is the virtue which in the future will produce the most beautiful and glorious fruits in the social life of human communities. In a certain way, this sympathy and love, this compassion and empathy, will arise in an appropriate way in those who truly grasp the Christ impulse, for it will then develop into a feeling. And it is precisely through the anthroposophical understanding of the Christ impulse that this will become a feeling. Christ has descended into earthly evolution through the mystery of Golgotha. His impulses, his deeds, are here. They are everywhere. Why did he descend to this earth? In order that, through what he can give the world, evolution may go forward in the right way. In order that the evolution of the earth, having received the Christ impulse into itself, may be fulfilled in the right way. And if, now that the Christ impulse is in the world, we corrupt something through immorality, through a lack of real interest in our fellow human beings, then we take away a portion from the world, the world into which the Christ impulse has flowed. This means that we directly destroy a part of the Christ impulse, since it is now here. But inasmuch as we give to the world what can be given through virtue, which is a creating force, we help build the world. We build it through our giving. It is not without reason that it has often been said that Christ was first crucified on Golgotha, but that he continues to be crucified again and again through human deeds. Because the Christ impulse has flowed into earthly evolution through the deed on Golgotha, we add to the suffering and pain inflicted on the Christ who came to the earth through our immoral actions, through our lovelessness and apathy. This is why it has been said again and again that Christ is continually crucified anew as long as immorality, lovelessness and apathy exist. Because since the Christ impulse has permeated the world, it is this that bears the suffering.
Just as it is true that through destructive evil we withdraw something from the Christ impulse, thus, as it were, continuing the crucifixion on Golgotha, so it is also true that where we perform deeds of love, wherever we act out of love, we support the Christ impulse and help bring it to life. Quote, Verily I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Close quote, Matthew 25.40 This is the most significant testimony of love, and this statement must become the deepest moral impulse once it will be fully understood through anthroposophy. We do this when we meet our fellow human beings with understanding and give them something through our actions, our attitude, our conduct that is based on an understanding of their essential being. Our bearing toward our fellow human beings is our bearing toward the Christ impulse itself. It is a powerful moral impulse, a real foundation for morality to feel the mystery of Golgotha was fulfilled for all human beings and from it an impulse has spread out into the whole world. When you encounter other people, try to understand them and all their differences, whether it be of race, color, nationality, religious belief or worldview. When you meet people and you do something to them, you do it to the Christ. Whatever you do to your fellow human beings in the present stage of earth evolution, you do it to the Christ. The statement, quote, I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of these my brethren, you have done it unto me, close quote, will at the same time become a powerful moral impulse for those who understand the fundamental meaning of the mystery of Golgotha. Then we will be able to say, as the gods of pre-Christian times gave humanity instinctive wisdom, instinctive courage and fortitude, so does love stream down from the symbol of the cross. Love that is built upon the mutual interest between one human being and another. In this way the Christ impulse will work in powerful ways in the world. When the time comes where the Brahman understands and loves not only the Brahman, the pariah not only the pariah, the Jew not only the Jew, the Christian not only the Christian, But when the Jew understands and has empathy for the Christian as a human being, the pariah for the Brahmin, the American for the Asian, then one will know how deeply Christian it is to say. There must be fellowship among human beings without distinction of any outer confession. We should attach less value to what otherwise binds us. We should not hold father, mother, brother, sister, even our own life in higher esteem than that which speaks from one human soul to another. Quote, whoever in this sense does not despise such distinctions, whoever does not despise the things that adversely affect the connection to the Christ impulse, which balances and compensates human differences, cannot be my disciple. Close quote. This is the impulse of love that flows from the mystery of Golgotha, which in this respect we experience as a renewal of what was once given to humanity as original virtue. At this point we still have to consider what may be called the virtue of the consciousness soul, temperance or moderation. In the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch this virtue was still instinctive. Plato and Aristotle spoke of it as the chief virtue of the consciousness soul, inasmuch as they considered it to be the state of balance, the mean, 
of what exists in the consciousness soul. The consciousness soul exists inasmuch as the human being becomes conscious of the outer world by means of the physical body. The physical body is, to begin with, the instrument of the consciousness soul. And the physical body also makes it possible for the human being to come to full I, capital, consciousness. The physical body must therefore be sustained. If the human physical body were not sustained for the mission of the earth, then that mission could not be fulfilled. But here too there is a limit. If people used all of their forces only to satisfy themselves, they would shut themselves up in their own inner being, and the world would lose them. Those who merely enjoy themselves and use all their forces just to give themselves pleasure cut themselves off from the world. Thus thought Plato and Aristotle, and the world loses them. On the other hand, people who deny themselves everything increasingly weaken themselves and eventually are taken hold of by the external world processes, are crushed by the outer world. People who overtax the forces allotted to them as human beings who carry them too far are seized by the world processes and lose themselves to the world. Thus what human beings have developed in order to cultivate the consciousness soul can be crushed, putting them in a situation where they lose their connection to the world. The virtue that enables the human being to avoid both these extremes is temperance. Temperance or moderation is neither asceticism nor self-indulgence, but rather the proper mean between the two. This is the virtue of the consciousness soul. With regard to this virtue, we have not yet progressed beyond the instinctive stage. A little reflection will show you that on the whole people are very much given to sampling the two extremes, to swinging back and forth between them. If you disregard the few who are endeavoring already now to bring some consciousness into this realm, you will find that most people live very much according to a particular pattern. First they overindulge in all sorts of delicacies and treats, and then they go to a health resort, where by means of the other extreme they correct the harm they have done to themselves. Here you have the tipping of the balance, first to the one side and then to the other. This is a radical case, of course, but even if it is not happening to that degree in all cases, this alternation between indulgence and deprivation is present everywhere. That is sufficiently clear. The people themselves cause the excess to the one side and then let their doctors prescribe a so-called withdrawal program, that is to say the other extreme, in order to repair the damage. You will see from this that in this area people are still very much of an instinctive disposition and we have to realize that it is indeed something like a divine gift when people still have an instinctive feeling for not going too far in the one direction or in the other. But just as the other instinctive capacities of human beings have been lost, so too will this one be lost in the transition from the fifth post-Atlantean cultural epoch to the sixth. As a natural ability, this will be lost. And now you will be able to judge how much the anthroposophical world conception will have to contribute toward developing more and more consciousness in this realm. Very few anthroposophists today, even those who are more advanced, recognize 
that anthroposophy provides the recipe toward attaining the right consciousness also in this area. When anthroposophy comes into full effect in this area, something will come about that I can only describe in the following way. People will gradually develop more and more longing for the great spiritual truths. And even though anthroposophy may still be mocked today, it will not always be so. It will spread. It will overcome all the outer opposition and everything else that still runs counter to it. And anthroposophists will not be content to merely preach universal love. People will understand that one cannot assimilate anthroposophy in one day any more than a person can eat enough in one day for a whole lifetime, that it rather is an ongoing process of taking in more and more of anthroposophy. And it will become increasingly rare within the anthroposophical movement that people will say, quote, these are our fundamental principles, and if we have these principles, then we are true anthroposophists, close quote. Instead, what will become more and more prevalent is the feeling of always being part of a community, of experiencing the vitality of anthroposophy, of experiencing this together with others. Now what happens when people inwardly work through the characteristic thoughts, the characteristic feelings and impulses that come from anthroposophical wisdom? We all know, of course, that anthroposophists can never have a materialistic view of the world that they have just the opposite. The materialistic way of thinking would state, quote, when a person thinks a thought, the molecules or atoms of the brain are in motion, and because this motion is taking place, the person has the thought. Thoughts arise from the brain like a thin smoke, just as a flame from a candle, close quote. That is the materialistic view. The anthroposophical view is exactly the opposite. In an anthroposophical view, it is the thoughts, the experiences in the soul that set the brain or nervous system into motion. The way and manner in which our brain moves depends on the thoughts we think. That is exactly the opposite of what materialistic thinkers believe. If you wish to know how a person's brains are constituted, then you must investigate what thoughts he or she has thought. For just as written characters are nothing else than the result of thoughts, so too are the motions of the brain nothing else than the result of thoughts. Wouldn't it also be reasonable then to say that the brain must be affected differently when it is filled with anthroposophical thoughts than when it is occupied with playing cards in a club? The processes taking place in our souls while pursuing anthroposophical thoughts are different from those that occur when you are playing in a card club or watching a movie. There is nothing in the human organism that is isolated or functioning on its own. Everything is interrelated. One thing acts upon another. Thoughts act upon the brain and nervous system, and this is connected to the entire human organism. Even though most people are not yet aware of it, Once the inherited tendencies that still exist in our bodies are overcome, the following will take place. Thoughts will be communicated from the brain to the stomach, and the result will be that things that still taste good to people today will no longer taste good to those who have absorbed anthroposophical thoughts. After all, the thoughts that anthroposophists take into themselves are divine thoughts, and these act upon 
the whole organism in such a manner that it develops a taste for what is good for it. What is not good for the organism will not smell good and the human being will then experience it as unsympathetic. This is a peculiar perspective, a perspective that may perhaps be called materialistic, but it is exactly the opposite. This kind of appetite, one whereby you like and prefer to eat certain things and dislike and do not want to eat other things, will develop as a consequence of anthroposophical work. You can also test this on yourself. When you notice that you perhaps have an aversion to certain things, which you did not have before you had anthroposophy, Such things will become more and more widespread if people work selflessly on their higher development in such a way that the world can receive from them what is right. Only one must not play hide-and-seek with the words selflessness and egoism. It is indeed very easy to misuse these words. A person is not altogether selfless when he or she says, I only want to work in the world and for the world. Why would I be concerned about my own spiritual development? I only want to work, not strive egoistically. It is not egoism when people work on their higher development, because in so doing they actually make themselves more qualified to actively partake in the further development of the world. If we neglect our own further development, then this renders us unfit for the world. We withdraw our strength from the world. Here, too, we must do the right thing, so that we develop in ourselves what the Godhead intended for us. Through anthroposophy, a humanity will develop, or, to put it correctly, a nucleus of humanity will develop, that will not just instinctively embrace temperance as a guiding ideal. Instead, it will have a conscious affinity for what makes the human being a building stone of the divine world order in a worthy manner and it will have a conscious aversion to what destroys the human being as a building stone of the world order. And so we see that moral impulses are present also in what is generated when human beings develop themselves. And in this way, we find what we might call wisdom of life, life wisdom, German Lebensweisheit, as the transformed temperance. The ideal of life wisdom, which is to become the concern of the next, the sixth, post-Atlantean epoch, will be the virtue which Plato called justice, that is, the harmonious conformance of the virtues. Since the virtues have somewhat shifted in humanity, what was regarded as justice in pre-Christian times has changed as well. A single virtue of this sort, one which brings about a harmonious accord did not exist in those times. Such harmonization was a distant future ideal. We have seen that courage was transformed into the moral impulse of love. We have also seen that wisdom became truthfulness. Truthfulness is, to begin with, the virtue that can place the human being into everyday life in the right way and in a worthy manner. But how can we come to truthfulness with respect to spiritual things? we come to truthfulness, to that which, as virtue, can set our sentient soul aglow, through right understanding, right interest, and appropriate involvement. What then is interest with regard to the spiritual world? 
if we want to meet the physical world, or in particular a human being, then we must open ourselves to and have an open eye, E-Y-E, for the nature of this other being. But how do we acquire an open eye for what relates to the spiritual world? We can do this by developing a very particular kind of feeling, a mode of feeling that also emerged in history when the old instinctive wisdom had sunk down into the depths of the life of the soul. It is the kind of feeling that we often find described by the Greeks in the words, all philosophy begins with wonder, with astonishment. By referring to wonder and astonishment as the starting point of our relationship to the supersensible world, something essentially moral has indeed been expressed as well. The average unsophisticated person is not, at first, transposed into a state of wonder by the great phenomena of the world. It is exactly through spiritual development that human beings come to discover the riddles in everyday phenomena and to have an inkling of something spiritual behind them. Wonder leads our souls upward into the spiritual realm so that we can enter into the knowledge of that world. And we can only enter into that knowledge if our souls feel an attraction for the things to be known. This attraction is what elicits wonder, astonishment, and also faith. It is actually always wonder and astonishment that guide us to the supersensible, and this also applies to what one usually calls faith. Faith, wonder, astonishment are three soul forces that lead us beyond the ordinary world. If we approach another human being with wonder, then we are seeking to understand that person. Through understanding a person's being, we come to the virtue of human fellowship, and we can best implement this virtue by approaching others with reverence. Then we shall see that reverence is something that we must bring toward every human being. If we do this, we will come to be ever more truthful. Truth will then become something we feel obliged to commit ourselves to. Once we begin to sense it, the supersensible world becomes something that we want to draw closer to, and through this awareness we shall attain to the supersensible wisdom that has sunk into the unconscious realms of the soul. It was only after the wisdom of the supersensible had disappeared that the statement arose which says that philosophy begins with wonder and astonishment. This saying clarifies and confirms for you that wonder and astonishment first entered evolution in the age when the Christ impulse had come into the world. Since we have already spoken about the second virtue, about love, let us now turn our attention to what is still instinctive temperance in our time, but which, as we pointed out earlier, will become life wisdom in times to come. With respect to these virtues, temperance and life wisdom, we are concerned with ourselves. Consequently, we act in such a way that through our actions in the world, we attend to ourselves. For this reason, it is necessary that we acquire a more objective standard as well. Now, there is something we see gradually arising and developing in the Greek civilization, in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, something which I have often spoken about in other settings, namely conscience. One can clearly trace how in the old Greek tragedies, such as those of Aeschylus, the Arinyes or Furies play a role, which then in Euripides appears transformed 
into conscience. From this we see that what we call conscience did not at all exist in earlier times. Conscience is, above all, something that stands as a norm, a standard for our actions when we go too far in our entitlements, when we are primarily seeking our own advantage. Conscience acts as a norm that places itself between our sympathies and antipathies. And through this we acquire something that is more objective, something that acts more in an outward direction compared to the virtues of truthfulness, love, and life-wisdom. Love stands in the middle in this respect and acts as something that must permeate and regulate all of life, also all social life, just as it regulates everything that human beings have developed as inner impulses. What we have developed as truthfulness, on the other hand, will manifest as faith in supersensible knowledge. And life-wisdom, in other words, that which applies to ourselves, we must experience as a divine spiritual regulator, one that leads us securely along the path to the true mean, similarly to what conscience does. If we had time, it would be very easy to respond to the various objections that could be raised at this point. We shall take a closer look at one only. For instance, people could object to the assertion that conscience and wonder are qualities that have appeared only gradually within humanity and instead maintain that these are eternal characteristics of human nature. As a matter of fact, they are not. And those who maintain that they are only show that they do not know the relevant circumstances. As time goes on, people will come to recognize that in ancient times human beings had not descended as far toward the physical plane and therefore still retained a connection with the divine impulses, that they were in a condition which human beings will be able to reacquire consciously when in regard to matters of the physical plane they become guided more by truthfulness, love and the art of life, and when in regard to spiritual knowledge they become guided by faith in the supersensible world. This need not be a faith that leads directly into the supersensible world. It will, however, ultimately be transformed into knowledge of the supersensible. And as it is with faith, so too it is with love that works outwardly. And conscience is what will work as a regulating force into the consciousness soul. Faith, love, conscience, these three forces will become the three stars of the moral forces that will enter into human souls, particularly through the anthroposophical worldview. A moral perspective of the future can open itself only to those who think of these three virtues as becoming ever more intensified. Anthroposophy will regard moral life in the light of these virtues, and these virtues will be constructive forces for the future. Before closing our observations, there is something still to be considered, something that I can only touch on briefly, although lengthier explanations would do more justice to it. We have seen that the Christ impulse entered human evolution through the mystery of Golgotha. We know that at that time a human organism, consisting of physical body, etheric body, and astral body, received the I impulse, capital, from above as the Christ impulse, that this Christ impulse was then absorbed by the earth, 
and flowed into the life of earthly culture, and that it is now within it as the I of Christ. We know, too, that the physical body, etheric body, and astral body remained with Jesus of Nazareth, that the Christ impulse had been like the I within these bodies, that on Golgotha, Jesus of Nazareth separated himself from the Christ impulse, which then flowed into earthly evolution, and that the evolution of this impulse signifies the evolution of the earth itself. Please, take these things with all seriousness, especially the things that are mentioned repeatedly so that they may be better understood. We have often heard that the world is maya or illusion, but that human beings must gradually attain to the truth, to the reality of this outer world. The evolution of the earth is basically a process in which, as far as all the outer things are concerned, everything that was formed in the first half of the earth's development will be dissolved in the second half, the half we are now in, meaning that everything physical we see around us will fall away from human evolution, just as the human physical body falls away at death. One might well ask, what will then still remain? What remains are the forces which, as real forces, were incorporated into human beings through the process of humanity's evolution on earth. And the impulse that is the most real in this process is the one that flowed into earthly evolution through the Christ impulse. But this Christ impulse cannot find anything on earth with which to clothe itself. It must, therefore, only in the course of the progressing evolution of the earth receive a protective sheath. And when the earth has reached its culmination, the fully developed Christ will be the last, in quotes, human being, parenthesis, as Adam was the first human being, close parenthesis, around whom humanity in its manifoldness will have grouped itself. The words, quote, I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of these my brethren, you have done it to me. Close quote, contain a significant indication for this. What is it that has been done for the Christ? Deeds that are done in the spirit of the Christ impulse, guided by conscience, guided by faith, and in accord with knowledge, are deeds that stand apart from earthly life thus far. And inasmuch as through moral deeds and moral conduct we give something to our fellow human beings, we also give to the Christ. This is how it must be put as a guiding principle. Everything that we create as forces, through deeds of faith and trust, through deeds done out of wonder and astonishment, is something which, because it is at the same time offered to the Christ I, envelops the Christ like a sheath, comparable to the astral body of a human being. We help build the astral body for the Christ I impulse through all moral deeds done out of wonder, trust, reverence, faith, in short, through everything that founds the path to supersensible knowledge. Through all these deeds we foster love. This is entirely in accord with the above-mentioned words, quote, I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. Close quote. 
we build the etheric body of the Christ through our deeds of love and through everything that is created in the world through the impulse of conscience we build for the Christ impulse that which corresponds to the physical body of the human being. When the earth eventually reaches its goal, when human beings understand the true moral impulses that bring about all that is good, then shall the Christ impulse be fulfilled, which through the mystery of Golgotha flowed into human evolution as an eye. It will be enveloped by an astral body built up through faith and through all human deeds of wonder and astonishment, by something like an etheric body built up through human deeds of love and by something enclosing it like a physical body built up through human deeds of conscience. In this way the future evolution of humanity will come to pass through the collaboration of moral impulses of human beings with the Christ impulse. Seen from a future perspective, we see humanity as a great organic structure As human beings learn to integrate their actions into this organism and through their actions create impulses that form a sheath around it, humanity will, in the course of earth evolution, build a foundation for a mighty community that can be thoroughly permeated by the Christ impulse. And so we see that morality does not need to be preached, that instead it can be founded by showing what has really happened and what is still happening, thereby confirming these things to be true as spiritually sensitive people feel them to be. It cannot fail to affect us emotionally. When we see how Goethe, after having lost his friend Duke Karl August, wrote a lengthy letter in which he described several things and how he then, this was in 1828, just three and a half years before his own death, that is almost at the end of his life, wrote down a wonderfully curious sentence, quote, The world of reason should be regarded as a great immortal individuality who continually brings about what is necessary and thereby becomes master even of the accidental. Close quote. How else could such a thought be made ever more concrete for us than by imagining this individuality working and creating among us and by thinking of ourselves as united with it in our working and in our creating. Through the mystery of Golgotha, the greatest individuality entered into human evolution, and by deliberately conducting their lives in the way described, human beings shall organize themselves around the Christ impulse, so that something will be formed around it, that will become like a sheath around its being, around its core. There is indeed much more that could be said about virtue from the perspective of anthroposophy. It would be possible in particular to include extensive and important considerations regarding truthfulness and its connection with karma. For it is through anthroposophy that the idea of karma will increasingly have to enter into human evolution. Through it, people will increasingly have to learn to regard and conduct their lives in such a way that their virtues are in accord with their karma. And it is particularly through the idea of karma that people shall have to learn to recognize that they should not disown their earlier deeds on account of their later deeds, 
a certain awareness of the effects in our life, a readiness to take on the consequences of what we have done. This will have to come about as a result of human evolution. If we look more closely, then we see how far removed human beings still are from this ideal. It is a well-known fact that people undergo a certain development as a result of their deeds. But once the consequence of a deed is no longer apparent, people still do what they might have done if that first deed had been left undone. That human beings feel responsible for their actions as a result of developing a greater awareness of karma, this is what a further elaboration of our studies could have shown. You will, however, be able to discover much for yourselves in the guidelines given in these three lectures. You will find how fruitful these ideas can be when you develop them further, such as that human beings will pass through repeated incarnations during the remainder of earth evolution because of the task they have, the task of rectifying through their own free will everything that they have neglected with respect to the above-mentioned virtues in the one direction or in the other, so that the balance, the middle condition, may arise and the goal may gradually be reached of forming the protective sheath for the Christ impulse, as was described earlier. Thus we see before us not merely the abstract ideal of universal human fellowship, which will of course also receive a strong impulse if it is founded on anthroposophy, but we see that our earth evolution contains something real, that there is an impulse in it that came into the world through the mystery of Golgotha. And then we also see ourselves confronted with the need to work upon the sentient soul, the mind soul, and the consciousness soul in such a way that this ideal being may be made real and that we may become united with this being as with a great immortal individual. The thought that the only possibility for the further progress of evolution, for achieving the earth's mission, lies in forming a unified whole with this great individuality, this thought is actualized in the following moral axiom. What you do as though it concerned only yourself, this separates you from this great individuality, and you thereby destroy something. But what you do to build up this great immortal individuality, in the way described, this you do toward the further development, the continuing life of the entire world organism. We need only place these two thoughts before us to see that their effect is such that they do not just preach morality, but give it a foundation. For the thought, quote, you are destroying through your deeds that which you ought to build up, close quote, is appalling and horrifying and suppresses all divergent desires. On the other hand, the thought, quote, you are building up this immortal individuality. You are making yourself a member of this immortal individuality, close quote, spurs us on to good deeds, even to intensive moral impulses. In this way, morality has not just been preached, but thoughts have been indicated that can themselves become moral impulses, thoughts that can found morality. The more truthfulness is cultivated, 
the more rapidly will this kind of morality be taken up in the anthroposophical worldview and ethos. I have made it my task to speak of this in these three lectures. Although some things could only be alluded to, your own souls will be able to broaden the thoughts we have touched on in these three evenings. In this way we shall also remain most closely united over all the earth. When we meet together in common study, as we have done here as anthroposophists of northern and central Europe, and allow the thoughts that have arisen in us to keep resounding in us, then this will be the very best way of carrying out anthroposophy's aim of founding real spiritual life, even already at the present time. And even though we must now part ways, we know that we are most closely united with each other in our anthroposophical thoughts. And this knowledge is at the same time a moral impulse. Knowing that we are united by the same ideals with others who are normally separated over long distances, but with whom we can meet from time to time on special occasions, this is a stronger moral impulse than always being together. And it is especially at the end of these lectures that my soul too is filled with the idea that we can think about our gathering in this way, that we can contemplate our common endeavors in this way. With this thought in mind, I would like to express my farewell greetings to you. I am convinced that if it is understood in the right light, anthroposophical life that unfolds in this way will also become spirituality grounded. And with these thoughts and these feelings, let us now bring our contemplations to a close. The end of Lecture 5